Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. If you'll remain standing, take your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter as our children are being dismissed. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're moving in, we're going to move into the book of James, but kind of in between, just a few uh, messages the Lord Put on my heart, really through the uh, beginning with a suggestion of, of one of our elders. So this morning we're back in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. So Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, beginning now in verse 1, we read, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, Peter knows that his death is imminent, and so he's writing to comfort, strengthen, encourage, and warn believers in the churches of Asia Minor who were facing a very serious crisis in their faith. I mean, false teachers were infiltrating the churches, and Peter was concerned. He was concerned that his readers' faith would remain sound and, and firm and, and steadfast. And he knew that a thorough and correct knowledge of God and his word is the best defense against error and, and the surest safeguard against false doctrine. And so he emphasizes the spiritual growth and, and development that must take place in the lives of believers. But in order for growth and development to occur, believers first must understand what they've received as the children of God and, and how they received it. So as we learned last week, and in writing this letter, Peter didn't focus immediately on the problems they were facing, but rather on the provision God had made for them. And he directs them to the spiritual resources they had been given in Christ. In verses 1 and 2, he reminded them that they had obtained faith from God as a free gift, a faith as equal in value in the sight of God as the faith of an apostle. And it came to them, not by any works of righteousness they had done, no, but, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is God our Savior. I mean, emphasizing that their salvation was not attained by personal effort or, or worthiness, but came purely from God's grace. And that's the essential thing. The first essential thing in the Christian life, to know God, to have a personal relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And the second thing is to become like him and to live a Christ-like life, a godly life. But the question arises, how can we do that? Well, in verses 3 and 4, which we looked at last week, Peter deals with the spiritual resources that believers have in Christ. By his divine power, God has granted to us everything that we need all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowing Christ and trusting in his precious and very great promises. I and mean, this, this is what God did for us at conversion. 
You and I and every true believer in Jesus Christ have every spiritual resource we need to sustain the eternal life that is in us and to manifest that life in godly living. And there's nothing more to enable you and I to live a godly life in this world than what we have already been given in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we're passive in this. The Christian life is not lived to the glory of God without diligent effort on the part of the believer to live out the Christian life and to grow and to mature spiritually. And this is what Peter deals with now in verses 5 through 7. Because Christ has given them everything they need for life and godliness, Peter now exhorts his readers and us to a godly life, to spiritual growth and maturity. But before we actually get to verse 5, it is very important for us to note that in verses 1 to 4, the very first thing that Peter addresses is what God has done for believers. And the order in which Peter does this is absolutely vital. I mean, it's just vitally important. Because you see, God doesn't ask the believer to do anything until he is first of all, or excuse me, Peter doesn't ask the believer to do anything until he has first of all emphasized and repeated what God in his grace has done for them in Christ. And Peter does so because he doesn't want anyone to get the mistaken impression that, that so many give today, that to be a Christian means you, you merely believe a, a set of facts about God and Jesus, and then you begin to live a certain way, a certain type of life, and then you add to it the things he mentions in verses 5 and 7. But loved ones, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel does not first ask us to do anything. The gospel, first of all, proclaims to us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The first statement of the gospel is not an exhortation to action or to conduct. I mean, before God calls on man to put anything into practice, he has to make it possible for man to put it into practice. A man must be born again. He must have received saving faith from God as a free gift of His grace apart from any human works or merit. And when He's born again, He is a new creation. He he shares in God's divine nature. He is set free from the power of sin. He escapes the corruption that, that marked His life prior to His conversion. And He's given unlimited resources in Christ and precious and, and very great promises in God's Word. As, as Peter says, God grants to Him everything He needs for life and godliness. And it is only after this that God calls a man to do anything. I mean, this is typical in the New Testament. Grace precedes demand. Because genuine Christianity is not about what man does for God but rather what God has done for man in Christ. I mean, Peter knows that gospel-driven change is rooted in remembering what God has already done for us in Christ and that we already possess everything we need. If we're in Christ, our Savior has already secured for us all that we need. And so in light of that, in light of what God has done for us in Christ, Believers, then, are to live in a way that is consistent with who they are and what they have in Christ. And so after telling us about all of the resources we already have in Christ, that that we've received everything we need for life and godliness, Peter now calls us to action. Look at verse 5. Peter says, for this very reason, and these words introduce this section and, and links and it, and it links verses 5 to 7 to verses 1 to 4. Because they had received saving faith by the righteousness of Christ and had been given everything they needed for life and godliness, Peter now exhorts his readers to, to a godly life. He says, for this very reason, make every effort. Make every effort. The word translated effort is literally to bring every effort to. In other words, it's, it's doing one's best in attempting to do something. It, it speaks of intense, 
passion and, and zeal to do something or accomplish some end. And the added word every, make every effort, means entire, the, the full quantity or extent, complete. And it underlines the comprehensiveness of this. I mean, Peter's telling them they're not to be half-hearted. Rather, they must make a full and complete effort. And so Peter's saying, make every effort. You know, no holding back. Do this with maximum effort. Give yourself fully and completely to this without reserve. You say, well, to what? Well, give every effort. Look at the verse to supplement your faith. You have every effort to supplement your faith. You say, well, what does that mean? Is Peter saying something is lacking in their faith that they themselves must now add? Is that what he's saying? Well, of course not. I mean, Peter is speaking to those who already had saving faith. Speaks of it in verse 1. He's not now suggesting they needed something in addition to faith in Christ. I mean, we're saved by grace through faith alone. We're not saved by faith plus good works or faith plus anything. We're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Peter is not talking about adding anything to our faith in terms of our salvation. You say, well, then what in the world is he talking about? Well, you'll notice he says your faith and not the faith. If Peter was talking about the faith, then he would be teaching that we need to add something to the faith uh, to complete our salvation, which is what uh, the false teachers were, were doing. That was the false teacher's mistake. They wanted to add some new doctrine to the faith. And if that was what Peter was teaching here, he would also be contradicting what he's just said about already having been given everything we need for life and godliness. When Peter says, your faith, he's referring to our personal faith and belief, our, our personal relationship, our personal walk with him. It is the faith, God's gracious gift, that puts us in a right relationship with him. And now Peter writes that our personal faith, our personal belief, the faith that we profess, if it's genuine, well, then that faith is going to work itself out in public and practical ways. He is addressing the issue of living out our faith in the world. He's talking about sanctification, the process of, of spiritual growth, the lifelong process of spiritual growth. You see, where there is genuine spiritual life, there must be spiritual growth. I mean, we must grow and develop spiritually. I mean, the new birth is not the end. It's, it's just the beginning. I mean, can, can, salvation must be put into practice by the godly living of the believer. However, in saying that, uh, we must understand that, that Peter is not suggesting that God has done the initial part. He saved us. Now it's up to us to do the rest on our own. It's not what he's saying. But a lot of Christians today think that way. You know, God saved me, now it's up to me. You know, I need to change myself, improve myself, it's, it's up to me and, and my performance from here on out. Let me tell you something, loved ones. If anything in the Christian life is left solely up to us, if after we are saved the rest is up to us and is based upon our performance, we're done. We're done. We're finished before we even start. But that's not what Peter's saying here. Peter is not going back on his emphasis on grace. What Peter is talking about here is our response to God's grace. His point is this. Because God in his grace has saved you and given you everything you need, because you have all that is necessary at your disposal, you must use the resources that are, are available to you and grow in your faith, grow in godliness, live a godly life, make every effort, take it seriously, put forth maximum effort to do your best. Why? 
Because God in His infinite mercy and grace has done all of this for you and I. And in response to His amazing grace, this is what you and I should want to do for Him. Give Him the best of our efforts. You know, live in such a way that that pleases Him, and in such a way that the gospel is adorned. And spiritual growth and godly living does not happen automatically. It doesn't happen automatically. It requires effort. It requires spiritual diligence and discipline on the part of the believer. We we must apply ourselves. And Peter's saying that every Christian ought to be energetic and enthusiastic in pursuing spiritual growth and progress. Back at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. The word supplement is also translated add, supply. Uh, It's actually the Greek word from which we get our English words chorus and choreography. It's a word that was very common to Greek culture. And it referred to a a wealthy person who would pay uh, the expenses of, of lavish productions that were put on, including paying the wages for the singers in the chorus. And the person would, would generously and, and lavishly supply what it took for these extravagant productions. And the word later came to mean providing generously, abundantly, lavishly, not holding anything back. And here, Peter uses the word to describe the effort that is to be given by believers. Our Lord has already given us all we need for life and godliness. All the resources we need have been made available. His very great and precious promises are at our disposal. There there is just grace abounding. And so now our responsibility is to take the resources and and generously, lavishly, energetically give, give of our own effort, not holding anything back, but giving all diligence in applying those resources in our lives so that we might grow in our faith and live out our faith on a daily basis. In other words, spiritual growth involves God's resources and power as the foundation, but also our diligent effort in response. That's what Peter's saying. As D.A. Carson wrote, the dominant biblical pattern is neither let go and let God, nor God has done his bit, and now it's all up to you, but rather, since God is powerfully at work in you, you yourself must make every effort. And we could use the illustration of a farmer. You know, God gives him the farm, the land, and and God gives him the tractor, the fuel, and and all the implements and equipment he he needs to plow and, and till and prepare the soil and plant the crop. God also supplies all the seed and the fertilizer and says, now, look, you have everything you need. And so I want you to take all that has been supplied and, and work the field. Use what I've given you to plant and, and produce a crop. I mean, that, that's our part. But ultimately, the increase is still up to the Lord because it's not going to happen unless he supplies the rain and the sunshine. And God even supplies the strength. The farmer puts forth the effort, but God supplies the strength that enables the farmer to do the work. And the point is simply, we're not passive in our sanctification. We're not passive in our spiritual growth. We have to put forth diligent maximum effort to live out the life that God has given us and and the life that he's called us to live. But even that's according to God's power. It's according to his power working in us. It's what Paul said in Philippians 2. You know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, working out our salvation means working out what God has already worked within us. In other words, it means our part is to put forth maximum effort and intense commitment to live out the Christian life in all our daily conduct. And we're only able to do our part, you know, we're only able to to work out or better live out our salvation because God is working in us. 
He enables us. And He gives us the power to put forth the effort, but we're still responsible for the doing. I guess you could liken it to, uh, you know, somebody laying in bed and having a nice, you know, breakfast prepared for him, sitting there at the table, everything ready. But he's not going to be able to eat it just laying there in bed. He's got to make the effort to get up out of bed and walk over to the table and begin to feed himself. That's what we're talking about. I mean, God's power is not designed to eliminate our responsibility to put forth great effort, but rather to enable us to do it. I mean, God's working in and through us does not mean that we can put our efforts on cruise control and kick back, relax, and enjoy the ride. We're to live flat out for God. And living flat out for Him, we're going to be pushed to our limits. We can count on it. But the question before us is not a matter of our capabilities, but of Christ's power. I mean, our sanctification, our growing and maturing spiritually is not without great effort. But God has given us all the resources we need for that. I mean, our efforts must be intense, but our resources are infinite. And that is Peter's point. Because we've been given everything in Christ we need for life and godliness, and we must put forth lavish, generous, energetic, maximum effort to draw upon and use what we've been given to grow and mature in our faith and to live a godly life. You know, the problem with most Christians is not that they don't know what to do. The problem with most Christians is they know what they're supposed to do. They just flat don't want to do it. Right? What about in marriage? It's no question how husbands and wives are to live and relate to one another. And they both contribute enough sin to the marriage relationship. The problem is they don't want to do what they're supposed to do because it's much easier to blame it on someone else, to blame it on your partner. But God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And that means life in a marriage, godliness in a marriage. we would just do the things that we know to do, our lives would be much better for it. So we have everything we need to live a godly life and to grow and mature in our faith. We just have to put forth maximum effort to do it. And now Peter gives seven characteristics of the life every Christian ought to pursue with a passion. And there are a number of similar lifts found in the New Testament. One of the most familiar is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, you know, self-faithfulness, self-control. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. I mean, a number of those are in Peter's list here. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. It's merely representative. I mean, these are not the only characteristics that we're to pursue. You might be wondering, well, why did Peter choose these particular qualities? Well, probably because they're the opposite of the evil characteristics of the false teachers that he exposes in chapter 2. They did not have moral excellence or Christ-likeness. They claimed to have knowledge, but they didn't know God who is holy. They lacked self-control and indulged the flesh. They were not persevering in godliness, but had gone astray. Rather than demonstrating true brotherly kindness and love, they were simply exploiting people for their own gain. A couple of other things about the list, quickly before we get to the list. First of all, I do not believe that we should understand each quality as building upon the quality before it, as some do. Because it is very difficult to see how moral excellence literally precedes knowledge. You could just as easily argue that we need knowledge in order to pursue what is morally excellent. 
Neither is it evident that you will only have self-control when you have knowledge. And certainly, uh, it is not clear that self-control must precede steadfastness or endurance. This list is more likely a literary device. You see, these sort of lists were common, a common literary form, both in the Bible and outside Scripture in the culture of the day. I mean, it was characteristic of earlier times when people didn't have a Bible to read like we do, that lists would be put together so items could be much more easily remembered. And that certainly would have been the case for the people that Peter was writing to. And so it would be a mistake to read anything into the order in which the characteristics are listed. And secondly, this is not a chronological order. In other words... Uh, It would be wrong to think that you must perfect in virtue or, or you must perfect virtue before you could go on to knowledge or gain vast amounts of knowledge before you develop self control. Listen, if you or I had to perfect one of these before we went to the next one, we would never get past the first one, right? (laughs) So we shouldn't press the order of the qualities listed, nor should we think Peter. Uh, encouraged his readers to work first on one before moving to the next one. And then one final thing. This list of character qualities is not a list of imperatives or commands. It's not a list of duties or activities. Peter is not writing about how to, but rather about the kind of person the Christian is supposed to strive to become. This is about becoming, by God's grace, the people that we are in Christ. This is about uh, living out the life that we profess. You know, we're God's people. And so we must live and act and behave as God's people. As Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is a fact. It is not dependent upon our behavior, but upon God's grace and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, our response is to seek to be the people we now are in Christ, which is why Peter also said in in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So let's look at the list. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with The first one is virtue, virtue. This word virtue is the same word Peter used in verse 3 where it's translated excellence. The word speaks of moral excellence, moral fortitude, courage, the ability based on internal motivators to do what is right and to stand alone if that's necessary. Since Peter uses it in in verse 3 in relation to Jesus, this gives us some idea of what he has in mind in terms of Christian character. God wants us to be Christ-like as his children. We're to seek to live morally upright lives. You know, having the moral courage, the, the ability to do what's right and to stand alone if that's what's necessary. I mean, how often Christians are criticized by those around them, and rightly so, for being absolutely no different than those in the world. We're to seek to reflect Christ. You know, His moral excellence in our thoughts, words, and deeds. The believer's moral excellence should make them stand out from the crowd. Then Peter says, uh, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge. This is not the same uh, word knowledge as that spoken of in verses 2 and 3, which is a, a deep, genuine, intimate knowledge of Christ that leads to salvation. It's a different Greek word. This word has to do with practical wisdom and discernment. This word knowledge means correct insight, understanding, It speaks of truth properly comprehended, properly understood, and then properly applied. 
that has to do with the believer's development of an understanding and discerning mind, one that will see what is good and God-honoring and, and one which can discern evil and sin and, and what is false and so avoid it. One man said, the cure for false knowledge is not less knowledge, but a knowledge characterized by moral insight. The operation of such knowledge distinguishes the believer's conduct from his former life in spiritual ignorance. So this is the knowledge that leads to wisdom and, and discernment that enables the believer to, to live a godly life. And this is a characteristic that, that so often seems to be lacking among Christians today. And perhaps this is because this kind of knowledge doesn't come automatically. You don't gain this by osmosis. We gain this knowledge through a diligent study and pursuit of the truth in the Word of God. And the Bible tells us how to think. The Bible tells us how to use our tongue. And how to behave in, in just about every imaginable situation. And as we put this knowledge into use, it, it helps us to grow and, and to know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ better. And there's an old hymn which expresses this desire. You know, more about Jesus would I know, more of His grace to others show, more of His saving fullness see, more of His love who died for me. To have spiritual knowledge requires us to use our minds correctly and, and to bring sanctified common sense to bear on our circumstances. And this is the kind of knowledge that will have an impact on how we live. Next, Peter says, and knowledge with self-control. Self-control. The Greek word translated here as self-control literally means holding oneself in. And in Peter's day, self-control was used of athletes who were to be self-restrained and self-disciplined for the sake of athletic achievement. In fact, Paul uses the word in reference to an athlete who exercises self-control in all things so that he might win the prize. And by definition, self-control means that you must go against your impulses or feelings in order to attain a higher goal. You know, an athlete must say no to junk food in order to keep in shape. He must work out even when he doesn't feel like it. It applies to controlling all desires, including greed, sex, food, emotions, and the use of our time. I mean, self-control means controlling your passions and desires rather than being controlled by them. It means maintaining a balanced life. And even when the world encourages indulgence, it means saying no to the second helping or, or no to the second look. I mean, this quality is also the final item in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And according to Titus 1, it, it is a necessary qualification for elders. And God works it in us as we walk in the Spirit, but we are also to put forth effort to put it into practice. I mean, although we're born again, as long as we're in these bodies, we're going to wrestle and struggle with our flesh. And the devil is constantly using the things of the world to appeal to our flesh at every turn. Because Satan would like nothing more than to see us be out of control. Because he knows, as Proverbs 25, 28 says, that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. But he also knows, as Proverbs 16, 32 says, that whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. I mean, lack of self-control is listed as a mark of the evil of the last days in which we now live. But you see, the Lord has placed his spirit within us, and he's given us a new nature. 
And he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness so that we can draw upon these resources so that our lives may be marked by self-control. I mean, how do we gain self-control over the flesh? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 5, where, uh, where he says to put to death what is earthly in you. We have to put it to death. It involves daily dying to self. You know, denying self, dying to self, bringing our lives under the control of and in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this concept of self-control is simple. But it's not easy. (laughs) And so isn't it good to know that God has, by His power, provided everything necessary for a life of godliness, including self-control? We're to never allow anything or anyone to control us except the Lord. Not money, not sex, not power, not food, not drink, not drugs, not habits or hobbies or work or personal goals. We're never to let anything or anyone control us except the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-control marks the believer out as as strikingly different from the average man or woman of the world. The fourth characteristic we're to pursue is steadfastness. could be translated patient endurance. And the word means to live under something, to remain under something. It's the idea of being unmoved or undeterred by difficulty or distress. It, It relates to our response to uninvited pain, the enduring of affliction. I mean, one man defines it as the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. It's often used with reference to suffering. It means that that we keep following Christ even when it results in persecution or hardship. So it has to do with remaining faithful in difficult times. You know, withstanding temptation and and continuing on with the Lord. But again, we need to remember that we do not remain steadfast on our own. But rather the Lord who began a good work in each one of us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. In times of temptation, trials, and sufferings come to us all, more more often than we even care to think about. But steadfastness means that we trust in the Lord and, and rely entirely on Him in those times. It involves a total practical commitment to the sovereignty of our Lord and Savior in our lives, even when we're suffering. We're to carry on in our faith to the very end, recognizing that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly from trials. And next is godliness. Godliness means to be reverent or devout, to worship. The term involves the the inner attitude of reverence as well as the God-pleasing activity flowing from it. I mean, to be godly is to live reverently and and obediently toward God. It's it's that desire of heart and mind to be pleasing to God in every area of life. It's a love for the things of God and and a walk in the ways of God. I mean, essentially, we could say that godliness is Christ likeness. It includes our conduct and how we relate to others, it also includes our behavior and, and attitude toward God. I mean, one man said, it is a very practical awareness of God in every aspect of life. It is the attitude which gives God the place you ought to occupy in life and in thought and in devotion. And I just wonder, as we think back over our weeks, uh, if we each one would consider, uh, you know, all of our interactions with Uh, our spouse or our children or our employees or our fellow workers or our neighbors, uh, you know, would you describe your, your, your attitude and actions as godly? 
I mean, are, are we pursuing godliness? Christ-likeness? Is that what you're pursuing in your marriage? Christ-likeness? Next is brotherly affection. And this one, I mean, it actually does seem to flow from the previous one. Because a reverent, loving relationship with God will, in turn, flow into a loving relationship with other members of God's family. I mean, here Peter uses the Greek word Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. It's the feeling of kindness or mutual understanding and care that that should exist among family members. It could apply to how we're to treat every human being, since we're all members of the human family, but it especially refers to the love that we're going to show others in the family of God. I mean, the church, the family of God, ought to be characterized by brotherly affection. But if you're not demonstrating brotherly affection at home, you're sure not going to demonstrate it at church. But the church, the family of God, ought to be characterized by brotherly affection. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans 12.10, to love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-10, Paul says to that church, now concerning brotherly love, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed, for that indeed is is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. I mean, if Paul was writing to this church, or if he was writing to you and your spouse, your family, would he say, you know, with respect to loving one another, this brotherly love, that that is indeed what you're doing? To all the brothers? I mean, Peter made a point of stressing this in his first letter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he exhorted his readers to have a sincere brotherly love, to, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In 1 Peter 3.8, he called upon Christians to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I mean, I, I think that we would all agree that, that it often seems hardest to show our love to our biological brothers and sisters, even when we really do love them very much. And this also seems to be just as true in the Christian life. I mean, we really have to work at, at loving some people. And I'm not trying to be funny. I mean, we do. I mean, maybe we don't really get along with them, you know, perhaps because of, of personalities. Well, there are things that we don't agree with them on. You know, perhaps, you know, you've been hurt by them in the past. I and mean, there, there are a lot of reasons why it may be hard to show real love for the Christian family, but learning to do this is a vital part of Christian growth and maturity. And it's the Lord Jesus who stands before us, not only as the one who will help us do this by his divine power, but also as the one who fully models what this love is really all about. You know, John, the Apostle John, writing in 1 John, 1 John 3.16, wrote, By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And you know, when people see this sort of brotherly love in action, it's attractive to them. Because it's a rarity. It's a rarity in the world that we live in. But people are drawn to a community where they see others truly caring for one another and and loving one another. In a day and age of of rugged individualism and and alienation, lack of love and, and loneliness, 
This can be one of the most attractive virtues of the Christian community. But it starts with each one of us as individuals. It's a humanly impossible task. But God has provided the means for us to do it, hasn't he? Because Peter tells us he has given to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. The resources are there. We're to draw upon them and then apply them in our lives with the grace and strength that he supplies. And Peter ends the list with love. Brotherly affection with love. And this is the Greek word for love the New Testament writers use so much. Agape. Self-denying, self-sacrificing commitment to seek the highest good of the one loved. And that's what God did for us, isn't it? This is the unique love God has for his people, a love that uh, spills over into our love for one another and even for the world and all of its spiritual needs. Agape love is not promoted by what the other person is or does or can do for us, but by a love rooted in what God is. It is the love of God which flows through us. I mean, this word which Jesus chose to summarize the whole law, calls upon us heart, soul, mind, and strength to set our affections on God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to reflect the love of Christ to the world around us. And with faith and hope, which are not mentioned here, the Apostle Paul reminds us that love is the greatest of the three because love lasts beyond the grave. I mean, love is part of the divine nature the divine nature that we share in. It's the ultimate mark of a Christian. Jesus told the disciples that people would know that they were his disciples by the love they had for one another. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. That's quite a list, isn't it? Quite a list. And if Peter hadn't prefaced... (laughs) These characteristics with a reminder of God's divine provision of all the necessary resources and power, living these out would be absolutely impossible. However, accompanied by God's promises and presence through His Spirit, and we can take Peter's instructions seriously. And we can begin to apply diligence you know, having a firm hope that God will work in us and, and with us as we grow more and more and more like Christ. And as we'll see next time, Lord willing, one result of growing in these godly qualities is that we will be useful and fruitful in knowing Jesus Christ. See, when it comes to spiritual growth and, and development, it's a long process. It's not a quick fix. I guess you could liken it to a diet or an exercise program. Two things nobody wants to hear about, right? But spiritual growth and development is a long process. It is just like a diet or an exercise program because it only shows results and we put into it Practice, you know, when we make every effort and persevere sticking with it over the long haul. And we can do this. We can do this by the grace and strength which God supplies. Doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly, we're not. We fail miserably and we fail often. But there's grace to forgive, isn't there? 
and grace to sustain, and grace to keep, and grace to strengthen. And God enables us. He gives us the power to put forth the effort. But we're still responsible for the doing. You know, let go and let God, meaning that you don't have to do anything, is a lie. No, we're called to put forth great effort, not to attain salvation, not to keep salvation. But we're called to put forth great effort, to draw upon and use the resources that God has given us in Christ, that we might grow and mature spiritually and live godly lives, live out the life that God has called us to live. And so may God in his infinite grace enable and and stimulate us to do our part, to grow and, and mature, to live out our salvation and to manifest these characteristics in our lives. Amen. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.